live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys, Aitzid Weinstein and Naor Mininger. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles. www.jewishjournal.com Your best source for Jewish news on the web. Also in cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, Israel's largest online social network community. Just look for the group on Facebook or visit them at secrettelaviv.com. Today, we have with us Maya Rimmer. Shalom. Hello, shalom. Hi, everybody. Shalom, shalom. And Maya is a very special guest because, um, you know, everyone is talking nowadays about refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, there, ha- there has been the Trump crisis now, um, Europe, Germany, it's been huge uh, stories we've seen uh, everywhere. But now uh, we have with us today someone who has actually met... Actually met refugees. Refugees. Real refugees. Turns out that they're people. They're people, yeah. I looked they, into that. They actually exist. Mm-hmm, yeah. It's not fake news. No, no. No, they're not just numbers or, or like political issues that we can argue of, over. Right. They're actually people. That's and, true. Yeah. And uh, I'm we surprised. figured. <laughs> I, think, I think we can blown. kind of wrap up the podcast right yeah, now. Like that's they're it. people. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you. It's yeah. enough of, an, of <laughs> no, you know. Nothing to discuss. It's a pretty important point we just made. Yeah. yeah. Not many people know that or realize <laughs> it. But uh, it's true because today, I mean, you you encounter just numbers and statistics and all these stories about borders closing, borders opening, and and you don't really get down to the fact to, to to personal stories. Yeah, and and you know, political interests and being used as pawns for political mm-hmm. interests and power and massive massive money being transferred to from you know one hand to the other. Um, not always going to where it's supposed to. So yeah, it's really easy to see the political, the, the refugee crisis as, you know, people speak about how Europe is changing and about, you know, the culture and about, mm. and, and it's just people. It, it really is. I think we should really emphasize though w- that in Israel, this issue is really, everyone is super interested and involved May, I think, I think people are talking about, it. people are interested, I think because we feel like Europe, we all go, un- unlike the Americans, for example, for us, U- Europe, it's not there. It's the we, vacation destination. We go there right here. like every month. Our Europe, come on, yeah. Syria. Now we have, we have EasyJet, we have f- for $100. We go there every month? Yeah, well, we maybe. should hang out more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't. Okay. No, but I, I go often, and it's super cheap nowadays. We go there yeah. a lot, and mm-hmm. Germany, you know, Israelis in Germany, it's, uh, it's a love story, love hate. <laughs> um, and I think many Israelis dread, uh, and that's the cliche, I guess, that one day we'll end in Germany and we'll find ourselves in Gaza or something yeah. very uh, stereotypical. Stereotypical. Sure. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> um, that's a word. Um, <laughs> so so I'm saying it's it, people take this people here very emotionally. Yeah. For for a couple of reasons, I think that um, people here, I think just like all over the world, people have woken up more to the Syrian crisis since Aleppo, right. since Khaleb, since we saw what happened there with the siege and the crazy pictures that were coming out of there. There are, in every news story, there are, um, and in every, you know, big political stories, there are um, certain times and certain peaks 
where this gets a lot of attention. It, it comes from social media, it comes from the news stream, like the main media. Mm-hmm. And Aleppo was one of these times where we can see that a civil war that's been raging for six years suddenly opened the news broadcasts. And like, I was amazed. This happened a month after I came back from my, um, my months of volunteering in a refugee camp. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I was, you know, the news was opening with the fighting and the, the siege on Khaleb, on Aleppo. It and took so many years for that to yes. actually happen. Yeah. And, and I just need, we need to say that Maya, we haven't said it. So yeah, I was, I was yeah, going to say we should. Yeah, you didn't introduce me. We even. should introduce you. I mean, I'm so sorry. We've been so rude. Lucky I'm chatty anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so first of all, Maya uh, Reamer is a, uh, what, is a journalist, independent journalist today. Uh, she worked for Channel 10 News. But recently you came back from a month only? Four months. Four, four months. months. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I heard you say a month. Okay, four months in Greece volunteering on refugee camps yes, there. Yes, yes. Because Greece is one of the places that... One of the main entrance points. Yeah, entrance points. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Greece is, Greece is one of the main entrance points because it's very close to Turkey. Um, so people are crossing on the Aegean. Mm-hmm. This is the where we're seeing um, a lot of deaths in the ocean. Um, this is happening both in the Mediterranean, where refugees are coming from Africa through Libya and trying to cross into Italy. Mm-hmm. This is through the Mediterranean. And the other route that we're seeing is coming out of Syria, going through Turkey, and then from Turkey trying to make the cross into the Greek islands that are actually very, very close to Turkey. Now, uh-huh. is there a reason they don't go through Istanbul? Through they Turkey? Can, they can go through Istanbul. Okay. They can't. This is all illegal, right? Yes. It's not proper immigration. They don't have legal right to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's about smuggling. And getting smuggled in an airport is much harder than getting on a dinghy yeah. and trying to cross. Now, this right. is a crossing that, you know, for me and you, if we were on the island of Lesbos and we wanted to go to Turkey, we would pay six euros and it would take 20 minutes and we would be in Turkey. No passports, no anything. It's very, very easy. Yeah. Um, I think there is, I think there is passports involved because the, the reason they go to these islands is because it's part of Greece and Greece is part of the EU. So by getting to those islands, they're the Syrians and, and others are hoping the same, but they're actually on European soil, which means they get refugee status. They get asylum mm-hmm. seeker status. This, this was the promise. This was, this is why this all happened. This right. is why they come. It's the hope. It's the hope. And, um, <clears throat> What we're seeing now is that the, because 2015, I'm not going to go and, you know, go back mm-hmm. and, and go too much into the history, but basically 2011. Yeah. <laughs> I was born on a small hill in <laughs> Kazakhstan. No, I wasn't. Um, That's disappointing. I, I know, I know. <laughs> just here next to Tel Aviv. Just, you know. No. Um, yeah, Syrians. Um, the... What happened in 2015, September, is a really important point where Merkel basically said anybody who will reach Germany will get asylum seeker status, yeah. which basically means come on in. Yeah. That made a lot, a lot of people from Syria and from Turkey actually make the move. And not just that, you know, we were looking at Syria and we were looking at Iraq, which is also a war torn country, but we're also looking at Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, and Africa. And, and Africa, of course. What, what is the difference between people coming from Africa and people coming from, from the Arab states? 
well it's hard it's hard to kind of differentiate to say this is this and this is this because both in Africa and in 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 the Middle East you have both asylum seekers and people who are um, economic migrants so you have economic migrants. of course of course so if you think um, if you think of both in Africa and both in 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 Pakistan and in, in Morocco in many many other countries people who cannot feed their children are people picking up their bags and trying to make it to rich Germany or rich Europe or or whatever because now unlike in the past now they they can see on the internet what's going on in Germany and they can actually want that which um, was I'm not sure if it's about <coughs> yes part of it is very much about being an, an international world the the you know the village um, that's part of it I think another big part of it is that things are getting worse I think poverty is That we're seeing now in third world countries is is more hardcore and more extreme in Africa than in the 60s or the 50s I I don't I don't know enough to yeah. to, to to come But in certain Arab states for sure I, and I think it's not only about that like in Africa we it's very easy to think about poverty and hunger but um, we've seen some horrific crime wars there that are still raging so right. if it's a southern Sudan Sudanese or an Eritrean then is it a war refugee is it a uh, an asylum seeker or is it an econo- economic migrant very and, hard to tell and a philosophical philosophical and political very relevant question is is there a difference between someone running away because their home was bombed and someone running away because they can't feed their well, children and, and, and the legal a, aspect a, there is a difference I know no, but a, in the end it's an existential crisis so I mean what is what is, how can you differentiate but I, w- I want to talk about the fact that you were there I was and there. you can adjust the microphone by the way as you as you, you see fit I can also adjust myself but but the <laughs> microphone would be easier to probably adjust. yes but you you were in lesbos no 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 I didn't I didn't go to lesbos Um, I was in the Thessaloniki area. So, okay. so just a bit about Greece and why there's so many refugees there at the moment. As you said, it's a, Greece is one of the gateways into Europe. And, um, and what happened was, uh, at some point, Europe, the European Union, decided to close the borders. So the borders from Macedonia, Serbia, but all the countries that the refugees were using to make their way up north from Greece actually shut the borders. And there was an agreement which um, basically agreed that Europe, that they're going to shut the borders. The refugees that are in Greece are going to stay in Greece. Greece is going to temporarily house them and care for them. And then through proper procedure, through the UNHCR, they will be moved into different countries. Mm-hmm. And different countries in Europe will... help Greece by share the load share the load that's it exactly so the latest um, the latest data on this that I saw in one of the newspapers said that um, we're talking we're about a year after this at this point um, this process was supposed to take three months that's what was um, promised to the refugees where a year later and only five percent of the refugees in Greece have been released resettled or yeah. moved I guess for like I think of countries like the Netherlands or I don't know it's very convenient for Greece to for them to have Greece yeah 
Another important thing that we should look at at Greece is that Greece is in the sixth year of the biggest economic crisis we've seen in Europe. Right. So that's also a very major thing when you think of the local population. They have what? 60% youth uh, unemployment? Yeah, 25 to 35. Um, the General? Between the, age, between the ages uh, of 25 the ages, yeah. and 35, they have 60% anim- unemployment. Right. And so they Basically have 90, a, yes, 95% sorry. of the refugees who have arrived are still in Greece. Uh, that's no, not not ninety five because many did move on. Many have made it into ah, Germany. Okay. There are already many are stuck in in Hungary also and in, in uh, Bulgaria. Right? Not so many. Next there to are Sofia, a few. There are camps. Serbia. There are a few. Um, not as many as in Greece. In so Greece, how many are in, in Greece, Greece today? We have sixty two thousand refugees. Wow. Um, which on the one hand is a big number. On the other hand, in a country of eleven million, it's really not. Mm-hmm. Such a big number. If you think about it in that in that way, and this is a point that's really worth making, both looking at Greece and looking at Europe, the numbers of refugees coming in the past few years is not that massive. When Israelis, when people, when Europeans worry that you know Europe is going to change completely, a Europe is changing completely. Hi, the world is changing. This is going to happen anyway. B, the number of Muslims that are actually coming in and of refugees is not as great as we fear it because of the terrorist element, because Mm. it's not just a woman Mm. with a burqa, but it's a woman with a burqa who we think might blow us up. Right. But the counterpoint to that is that that, um, many of those refugees go to the big cities. Yeah. And in the cities, in the big cities, you see cities where we, you have like even 50% and even in Malem of the cities like Malmo, Malmo. you see like 70% yeah. um, Muslims are, are refugees or immigrants. And then their um, effect yeah. is much more immense. I agree. Um, so it's, uh, it's also worth mentioning the numbers, but also there are I little completely, numbers. I completely agree with you. Um, the other point about that is that if there was um, good integration programs that actually allowed for this population not to stay in one social economic standard but actually be dispersed between the population, then they would not be living in ghettos and that True. would not happen. But it is happening. Yeah, this we is, know the Europeans. Yeah. We know how they are. We yeah, know. Ethan, you, you well, were no, I was gonna, but I want to go back to Saloniki. So you were in a camp in Saloniki. Right. So I was, I spent, first of all, I came for two weeks and I ended up staying four months. So this is a good kind of um, anybody who wants to go volunteer, do it. It's amazing. Um, what I did is I volunteered with an organization called Together for Better Days, mm-hmm. an organization that worked on Lesbos on the island and did some amazing things there. And El Pida, that's the refugee camp that I volunteered in, is the second, the second project of this um, young NGO. And you started to say why Greece? Why Greece? Greece, because Greece has 62,000 refugees that are still stuck there, because resettlement and, and moving, um, moving people to different countries is not actually happening. Right. What's happening is that people that, it was supposed to be a transit point. People were supposed to stay in these camps for two, three months. And it's a year and more now during, we're getting into the second winter. Mm-hmm. So things that were supposed to be very temporary are becoming not temporary at all. People are becoming very depressed. These are people, you know, refugees in these camps. They can't work. They can't study. 
they, there's literally nothing for them to do. They're allowed to leave. It's not a prison, but they have no money. Mm-hmm. So they don't have any means to do that. And they so don't know the country. They don't know, they don't know but, the language. But, they don't know the but country. But the islands of Greece are very near to, to Turkey. Yeah. And the islands, there's a difference between a situation on the islands and in a mainland. Where I was in s- near Thessaloniki, that's the mainland. Mm-hmm. The mainland is a different story. The islands are in horrific condition. Mm-hmm. Horrific. In the sense of it being three and four times the capacity. So if there's a reception center, that's what they call the camps. If there's a reception center in Lesbos, in Chios, or in Samos, that's supposed to house up to 800 refugees, there's around 4,000 in it now. So any chance of giving them proper anything, you know, medical treatment, food, nourishment, shelter, anything like that goes out the window because any... You cannot work with four times capacity. Sure. Were you in these camps on uh, Samos and? No, uh, I didn't go to the islands. Uh-huh. I I was in I was uh, working in LP the home, mm-hmm. and I can also say on a personal level, and I think this like I don't mind making this point, that what's happening in the islands and seeing people reach come with the boats, having lost people on the way, these are scenes that my friends have described to me, and I'm very happy that I haven't been there. Yeah, it's it's human tragedy in in a sense that I have not encountered firsthand, mm-hmm. and I truly hope not to know your limits, like your psychological, your right. Yeah, so, right. So you got up one day and decided to move to to Greece. Um, it was it was it was a bit different than that. My thing is that I'm I work with I I'm an activist, mm-hmm. as I said. I was um I kind of woke up um or. Know, became much more active during the 2011 um, summer protests, protests in Israel. Um, I was very, very much into that. And after that, um, in 2012, a lot of new things started happening in Israel. So cooperatives and different groups. And to cut a long story short, I realized that we didn't have tools to work within our groups, within ourselves, in a way that does not copy the power structure outside that we are protesting against. So I went to look for these tools. And I found what's called the art of hosting. The art of hosting is a beautiful practice that is about engaging people in meaningful conversation in um, different methods and different ways to work in a non-hierarchical way to encourage creativeness, openness, um, and really create a new atmosphere to allow people to bring themselves. Mm-hmm. So one of my very mm. big understanding, understandings from 2011 is that I don't want to be the type of leader that runs for the Knesset and becomes an, a very young MP and goes, I'm so cool, although I am quite cool. Yeah, we had no doubt. Thank you, thank you. Um, the kind of leader that I want to be and the kind of leaders that I want to help create are people that understand and know how to give platform and encourage and empower other people. Right, because I'm never going to be able to speak for the underprivileged Israelis because I'm not. I'm never going to be able to speak for the Arab population and for many other populations that need a voice. Mm-hmm. So what I can do as a privileged white Jewish Israeli, you're no Vicky Knafo. I'm no Vicky Knafo. I'm not sure if that's an insult or a compliment. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how to take it. I'm yeah. no Rosa Parks either, you know. Yeah. But. What I can do, and I've become quite good at this, is create a platform that allows for those people to, to bring their voice and to create cooperation. Mm-hmm. Um, I want leaders in the future that understand that being a leader is not just about 
you know, shouting at a politician or leading something, but about turning into your community and holding conversation. Meaning from a point of privilege, you can't really speak for the underprivileged. That's, that's, you have to give them the power. That's part of it. But then another part of it is a different concept of leadership. Mm-hmm. It's a concept of leadership that aims to to encourage cooperation, to encourage conversation, Mm -hmm. to know how to be a leader within your community does not mean that you need to be the loudest and most charismatic, but means that you need to know how to nurture people in your community, how to support people, how to help people cooperate and work together, how to foster, you know, good things that have long-term consequences and not just... So this is all under the art of hosting. And I, um, I learned this from uh, Maria Scordiello and Vanessa Reed, um, was practitioners and, and part of the people that put this amazing method together. And I've been working with this in Israel with um, political groups, activists, students, and I've been searching for a long time for something with more meaning. Mm-hmm. This kind of work often goes into like organizational development mm-hmm. and me with my anti-capitalist protester background, I couldn't... You're not I exactly looking not. To, to prop up Teva. No, and, uh, no. Yeah. <clears throat> no, that's not exactly... You know, I've been in circles where the question was how do we make more profits for our shareholders and <laughs> I, I... yeah, it gives I, you the shivers. It does and I'm, I'm, I'm the disturbance in those, in those areas. And so when... Maybe if you got though all the shareholders in a room and uh-huh. just have them talk to Let's each talk other about our emotions exactly maybe, she, maybe emotions. we should privatize the the cat the refugee camps that's yeah it. well w- w- the lp that the camp that i was volunteering in actually the funding does come from a philanthropist from a uh-huh. very from the radcliffe from foundation and yeah from like a, a an ahmed khan which is like a, a bill clinton um right the arab children yeah the american <laughs> sheldon but um i think sheldon is the american sheldon right point okay so you point you, point. you, point. Deci- you, you, you decide <laughs> trying to get there, trying you de- to get there. okay i decide i heard about this project i decided i want to do good with what i have um i asked my friend who's doing sharing circles in this project and he says nobody and i'm like no 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 but who sits with the volunteers and allows them to share emotion and he's like Nobody. No, you don't get it. But who, so I realized this was missing, and I and I came to offer this to the volunteers. Yes, yes, to the volunteers. At first, I worked only with the volunteers. So you came to help the volunteers yeah. who helped the refugees. Yeah, I was. It was really funny. I did uh, a fundraising campaign to get me over there, and it was like a Kickstarter. Like a Kickstarter. Yeah, and it was. Um, I was asking people to support me, supporting the volunteers, supporting the <laughs> refugees. Right. Um, I, the, the main reason that I intended on working more with the volunteers is because I'm not a mental health professional and mm-hmm. I'm not a psychologist. And um, you don't speak Arab- Arabic. Yeah, that's, that's work. You can work around that. That's not it. I had many close connections and I did end up, of course, working with the refugees a lot. But um, from the get-go, I, I, I have a lot of respect for this condition they're in and i feel it would be irresponsible for me to try and hold something that i'm in- ill-equipped to hold right and you know volunteers or activists or young people are me and you and that's right. very easy for me to and work i guess with. they need some attention too and probably they Do don't get it they ever this is one of the amazing things i found about the humanitarian field that many times like the emphasis is on the beneficiaries of course the refugees are the story here but i show up in a camp and you have you know, 20-year-olds, 23-year-olds. Working their ass off. Beautiful people working their asses off and 
doing really, really hard things, working in a field where there's so much trauma, so much underlining violence and such deep sorrow. And, you know, so many things come up for you as a Westerner. There's issues of privilege and issues of guilt. And, you know, you see the... the the worst parts of the world right in front of you and a lot of people suffer from secondary trauma because a lot of the refugees feel like sharing and and tell you about their journey and about people that they've lost so the concept how, how did you encounter the the fact that the volunteers were going through this before you before you even went to the camps you knew that this was the situation I imagined that okay. anyone being um, submerged in this environment and mm-hmm. who don't that don't have an outlet are going to have some um, some problems. Mm-hmm. That was very clear to me, and it was also what I what I had to offer. You know, many times you come and you offer, and you see that you you're not offering something relevant, so you shift. You know, you change it up. Right. This time it was extremely relevant, and it led to more and more work. Right. So I suggest we listen to a song, and then we'll go. We'll dive into your experiences there. So, well, uh, we, as part of our podcast, we try to um, m- make people familiar. Expose people. To, yeah, expose yeah. people to the Israeli English indie music here, scene, the scene. Beautiful. Here in Huge scene. Beautiful, Beautiful. scene. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've had this band, Wild Willows, a while ago. Um, but no one listened to us then It's what, episode 2 maybe Of course people listen to you then. Yeah, like Aiton's mother, more. my mother Not And now my mother listened to that only. three times <laughs> <laughs> Is it, Does it come up like unique? Yeah, it's her exactly. ringtone I told her to do it from different computers <laughs> It's her ringtone Like Not our podcast is like her ringtone <laughs> So um, The Wild Willows and, and Omri Degan um, It's a band that is really close to my heart And I think it's, it's actually a relevant song to this episode Find me a place I love I'll miss you friends Don't worry we will meet again Sunday
it's so over. catchy. We're, we're not we're not gonna try and even no, sing. No, no, yeah, we, yeah. We really you should. definitely shouldn't. <laughs> definitely not. If we want to maintain retain any of our listeners. So we're back with my. So these were the Wild Willows. They have Facebook. They have uh, their own Bandcamp, and they're going to a tour in Europe apparently over the summer. So oh. uh, stay tuned. And we're back with Maya Rimmer, who was at the refugee camps yeah. in Greece and yeah. came back to tell the story. I did. I did. I'm actually going back in uh, about ten days. Really? Yeah, I've been invited back by one of the camps that I um, worked with to do a workshop there. Um, so I'm, go- I'm going back in the middle of February. For how long? I'm going back for two weeks. Uh-huh. No, no, no. I'm, I'm really going <laughs> back. No, no. Last time it was two weeks. It ended up being four months. This time I did the smart thing and I actually got the return ticket also. Uh, what's can, a return you can, ticket? Yeah, you can delay those. <laughs> so I'm really hoping. I also, I also give talks. So I'm really hoping to book some talks like for the days after so that I have to come back. Because mm-hmm. otherwise... Or you book them in Europe. Here's an idea. Um, I can be your agent, by the way. Well, we'll discuss it later. I, I, think, you sh- I think you should. I really think you should. Okay. Um, okay. So you land there. What do you encounter? Um, I think stepping into volunteering in a refugee camp is one of the weirdest experiences that I've ever had. I've never done humanitarian work before, so it was very new to me. Um, I'm a very sensitive person, and a lot of my work is about like listening to people and being very in tune with people. Mm-hmm. So stepping into a place where there's so much sorrow and like hardcore emotion was very difficult. The humanitarian field itself is also very, very confusing. Um, many times counterintuitive to what we think because um, on the one hand, you really want to help. On the other hand, you don't want to create dependency. On the one hand, um, if you see a problem, you want to solve it immediately. On the other hand, you have to be really bureauc- bureaucratic and work through the system because the system ensures or is supposed to ensure that people get the same, you know, that everything is fair. You described in, in your talk, I mean, me and Noah were at your talk. I'm, I'm revealing because it. Because we're serious. Thank you for that. You are. Yeah, brilliant but it was, research, It was guys. a brilliant talk and it was a very interesting. But you, you spoke about that and about how you tried to solve a problem for yeah. one of the... Yeah, one of the it was it was in my first week at mm-hmm. camp, uh, and I saw a woman walking with her two children, and her flip flops were broken, um, so she's limping along, and I saw her walking along, and and I see that her flip flops are broken. I know we have donations of many many shoes, so I decided to do something there and then. I can actually solve a problem right now with something small. I can do it. Yay! Very excited. So I walk over, I ask her size, she gives me her size, I went down, I picked some flip-flops with some red, like, frilly kind of something on it, and I gave it to her, she was very happy. As soon as I give it to her, four other women come up to me and say, look, my baby, my baby, no pants, and, and my little girl, she only has this, and this has holes, and I have no top, it's very cold, and they start demanding things of me because I just brought this woman shoes. And I try to explain. It's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not like I, I'm not. I don't. It was a one-time thing, guys. I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not distributing clothes. You know that you need to go through info point. You know, and I direct them, and they got really mad because you just gave her shoes. You just solved her problem. So why don't you solve my problem? And then it really hit upon me why we have these systems in place and why something that can be very um, intuitive and very easy for us can still 
can still be a problem. And the bottom line is not about me getting, you know, told off by some women. It's about creating tension within the community. Mm-hmm. What do they think about Jews and Israelis? This was actually a very, very... Most of them are Syrians? Uh, most of them are Syrians, yes. They're also Iraqis, a lot of Iraqis and a lot of Kurds. Um, but Afghanistan? There are in Greece. I didn't work in the mm-hmm. camp where I worked. We had predominantly... It's a big word, huh? predominantly. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. Well done, Maya. First time in the, the thank podcast. You. Thank you, thank you. I like giving myself points. Hayton <laughs> is so mad because it's <laughs> a like, thing. She took that word. <laughs> I was saving it. Predominantly. Yeah. So most You're of them are You're just rubbing it in. <laughs> <laughs> I try, you know. Take it off my head. <laughs> <laughs> He's leaving. Where are you going? Um, so yeah, most of the camp that I worked in were Syrians. There are also in, in um, Greece a lot of um, Afghans, Pakistanis, African migrants, lots of different things. But I worked predominantly with Syrians and Iraqis. So what did they think? What did they, what? This, was, this was quite amazing, actually, because I came in and I looked like a European and I came in with other European volunteers. So at first glance, I'm like any other German, French, European, whatever volunteer. And so, and I start, you know, volunteering, if it's giving out food, playing with the kids, whatever. And then somebody makes me angry or something, you know, and some sort of halas or dirbalak or, you know, one of our Arabic, Israeli kind of, um, not swear words. Proverbs. Proverbs, okay. <laughs> something, something very natural comes out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a surprise. Wait, this is now really confusing because she looks European, but she just gave something in a very good accent. So then they look at me and they say, Tahbi Arabic. Do you speak Arabic? And I say, La. No, because I don't. <laughs> I'm very bad. My Arabic is very basic. Uh, but I answered in Arabic and that's even more confusing. So the next question, next question is, where are you from? And I say, I'm Israel. I'm from Israel. So they stop, they look at me, and they say, that's even more confusing because there's no headscarf on me. So, and then it's like, are you a Muslim? And I say, la, I'm a Yahud. I'm Jewish. <gasps> that's very confusing. Tom, Tom, Tom. Yeah, that's very, very confusing. And then they stop, they work it, they think about it. So if, and children, for children, they don't really understand what that yeah. means or where that is. Um, the adults take a minute like maybe confer between themselves and then look at me and say, Ahlan wa sahlan, marhaban, marhabten, welcome, welcome. Mm-hmm. I have so ne- what did you deduce from that? I have never, never felt unwelcome or discriminated because I'm Jewish, because I'm Israeli. Yeah. I felt very, very comfortable amongst the Syrians and Iraqis. I felt and I know that I understood them and their culture so much better than other people around me, the other volunteers. I understand why when we walk into a room, I will shake the hand of the father before I acknowledge my friend who I actually came to visit, who's a woman my age. And I understand how when they invite me to sit and eat, how you take the pita and how you work with your hands and eat from a communal dish. And I understand the intricacies now, when when you when they ask you these questions, you gave them it, what I noticed. I don't know. Maybe it's just the storytelling, but the minimum amount of information. So I wonder, was it a was this a shift? Like, w- did you come that way, or were you actually at the beginning maybe a little scared of what their reaction would be? I was very scared. Mm-hmm. I really came. I came very scared. Um, I was. I was worried. I was because I came with the 
very obvious understanding that your vest that Syrians no, hate me. Yeah. No, no vests. But I was I was under the understanding that Syrians hate Israelis. This was mm-hmm. like a very natural thing for me, and I've never been. I've never. I was not brought up in a right wing environment. Like there is no racism in my natural environment. So this is not. But it has nothing to do, you know. We know the the Syrian education system and how it worked there. It's uh, obvious that they wouldn't like us. But you know, we all we also. Well, uh, you're shaking your head because I'm, because I'm they were they were taught that yeah, Israel is we the were, enemy, just like we were taught that Syria is the enemy. Fine, I don't. Okay, yeah. But I'm saying, I'm this saying, was, it's w- natural to yeah. expect that they wouldn't like us. Okay, and also we know, you know, we're living with Arabs, right? Yeah. Here in Israel, with Palestinian Arabs. Yeah. And we know that we can be best friends, be their guests, treat it like. Uh, friends but that doesn't mean that politically they don't oppose us deeply it never it, on yeah. the contrary it's very very i think the middle eastern culture to separate this separation yeah. that you're talking about so maybe what i'm saying is it doesn't necessarily what you described doesn't necessarily mean that they don't despise you on the political level right i i i understand completely what you're saying and this was the amazing thing they did not despise Israel on the political level. They actually said to me, many, many different people, they said to me, Israelis are treating our wounded. Israel is not part of the fighting. And we understand now that Assad has been telling us lies. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of them awoke from the propaganda. And even people who knew it was propaganda, they could not talk about it. Like, so even if I knew that him telling me to, you know, that Assad saying Israelis are bad or Israel is the enemy, even if an individual could think this is wrong, they could not share that thought with their friends because they would get in a lot of trouble. So this kind of opening really created space for a new theory about Israel. I can say that with every relationship within Israel, and I've had many, many Palestinian friends, in any relationship, it doesn't matter how close it is and how intimate, there is always the oppressor and the oppressed. It's always there. Even if it's made, if you, even if you compensate by guilt, it doesn't matter how you turn it around, that is the dynamic. With the Syrians, that is not the dynamic. The past six years, Everybody around them and not around them has been massacring those people. Or trying to massacre. Or massacring, working pretty well on it. We have not. This is an extremely unique position to be in as an Israeli. Mm -hmm. And I did feel that difference. Well, wait, you know, we're only only getting started. Let's see what happens, you know. You know, inshallah, we can do more. I think Israel has a lot... I, I actually consider... He was talking about the massacring. Yeah. So I don't know. Oh, no, 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 no. We can, we can do more. Can do don't more. worry. We can. We have weapons. <laughs> I, I, I actually think that this could be a, an amazing opportunity for right. Israel to create a new narrative around um, our neighboring country. I think this could be an amazing, um, even in the sense of public, of public, the way the, the world sees us, like to do something that's just massively good and not within our national interest, which is always very, very narrow, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that could be a big difference. Well, th- I mean, there, there are a couple initiatives. I've, I mean, y- we have your story here, and I, there's uh, uh, Surim al which I recently saw on the news. Yeah. Um, but what, what, what kind of... Surim al is uh, It's an initiative to bring uh, clothes and medicine to Syrian children. 
across the border. But what kind of initiative are you, what, what, what do you imagine? I mean, what would you? So, you know, different people can imagine different things. Mm -hmm. You could raise a question which has been raised. Why not a refugee camp in the Golan Heights? Just for example. Mm -hmm. Why not a refugee camp on the border? Can Israel not support 5,000 orphan children? Some have said, why not infiltrate and, and, and uh, make Syria secure and, and uh, you know, I uh, would Bush not, style? I would not. I would not. Also has been raised. I would not. That's definitely has been raised. I am, I am not a person that will ever um, offer troops to go in. I don't believe that to be the answer. Not when it comes to Syria. To, Russia coming in, coming in and changing the balance. Not when it's oh, the, the US. new Trump plan for safe zones. Yeah, uh, but that that does bring up a good point because you know with this influx of of migrants, refugees into Europe, and um, this this movement for people out of the Middle East and North Africa, I mean it. it it does give the sense that you know we're abandoning the strongholds for the dictators. You know, I mean, it doesn't. Maybe, maybe we do need to obviously take in refugees and provide refuge for people That's, who are seeking asylum. But shouldn't that be coupled with battling the bad guys where they and are? And if I, if I may add, uh, let's not for, just a little point. Let's not forget for for every refugee that Germany has taken, like ten Syrians are either dead, hospitalized or uh, misplaced in Syria. Yeah. And that's very, very convenient for the Europeans to accept those refugees and neglect the actual battle and not get their hands dirty. Yeah, so two, two points to that. You raise really, really important questions. Um, the first is that I don't know how to solve the civil war in Syria. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not an army expert, and I think the army experts have failed massively. Uh, I think that it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. I was there at the foreign news desk covering um, Obama when uh, chemical weapons were found in Syria, and he had, in a very short span of time, he had to make the decision if he's sending ground troops in or not. And I think Chickened he, out for you who... Okay, so and I was going to say he made the courageous choice okay. for me. Um, if he doesn't send them in, then people will say he chickened out. If he does, then you have another Iraq, another Vietnam, True. another. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna um, pretend to know. I do know that um, about two years ago, Assad was about to lose the coalition against him. Was gonna win. He was very, very close to defeat, and then Putin and Russia came in, and there was a vacuum, and yeah, and. There wasn't even a vacuum. There was someone losing, which Russia decided they weren't going to tolerate losing because they, they have were, interests. Of course, they have interests. Everybody has interests. Um, that's the one thing. The other thing I wanted to the other thing I wanted to touch upon was your really good question about um, about are we not leaving those areas for the dictators? Um, I'm going to throw in the I'm going to put on my anti-capitalist hat and say that. Um, the way the first world is treating those countries, it's treating the third world, robbing their resources, robbing their ability to control themselves, trying to place uh, Western methods, both economic and social, on, onto these societies is the reason that they are unsustainable. Um, the Iraqis that I met, for example, this really blew my mind, the Iraqis that I met um, in El Pira told me that Saddam was a really good leader for them. They really did. 
They said that things started going wrong when the U.S. came in and, 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 you know, and threw Saddam off. So I'm not going to sit here and say he was a good leader. I don't have that knowledge. But I do know that several different people that I've met have told me this. And I do know that I've worked in the media long enough to know that the media r misrepresents reality time and time again. And I think that we cannot presume, you know, the, the, the Western world has this kind of... Um, um, this this way of thinking that we know better and we indignation. understand indignation indignation yeah yeah I, I, I got you back you got me back touche so what about that's, that's the reason I asked the question just to basically just just to find the just word to I put find. that word in. yeah you wrote the word and then you're <laughs> exactly. like I need to find a question <laughs> so, around this what can I ask yes, the dictators. most complex strategy dictators. yes <laughs> that's good. so how did you interact and and integrated with the people in the camp. Oh wow! Um, I I developed some really deep connections when I was there. I actually have you know it's a it's an interconnected world. So we're all on Facebook and WhatsApp, and everybody's in they touch. all have Facebook. Yeah, everybody has a cell phone. Everybody has a smartphone. There's internet by Net Hope, which is another amazing NGO that provides um, internet to to the refugees. Um, there are different ways of connecting. One of the um, one of the beautiful things that happened, the first things that happened is that I met a Syrian family from southern Syria, um, and their boy, Hassan, um, was very very helpful in the sense that I needed to go room by room and 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 fill out something on one of the first days that the camp was open, and he just helped me translate. Um, and then slowly, slowly, we started, you know, building a connection. And um, I took him and other youths for walks, hikes on the mountain behind the refugee camp. Um, and especially being there for four months, which is a very long time in in refugee in these kind of short short spans of of, of short cycles, um, you really get to know people. And Hassan, the the relationship with him was especially uh, amazing because we. He shared with me his um, his his journey, his and his families, and he told me about um, you know about the fifteen days crossing Syria, which means traveling north there from Dara, which is right in the south. So he explained about you know half of the way is with Assad checkpoints and troops, and they rob and they you know kill you know all sorts of horrific things that happen in war zone. Um, they ex they told me about how they would hide the SIM card from the phone because that would have the pictures, which is all they have left. So the women would sew it into their clothes or they would hide it in a bus. They would cut cut the seat of the bus because they know that they take them out and they rob everything. Um, stories that, you know, that remind me of stories my, my grandmother used to tell of like, running away from Europe in the in the late 30s, early 40s. It's like the, you know, we, we always say don't we, we can't compare, but these are the images that are summoned to the Jewish mind when mm -hmm. you hear these stories. And w were there ever moments, I wonder, I mean, wh when he was telling you this, because I'm sure, you know, it's a traumatic experience and it brings a lot of emotion up, but were there ever moments of, of humor in the camps that you were able to kind of sit with Hassan and, and laugh? And Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. One of the funniest things, I can't believe I'm telling the story in this podcast, but yes. I'm about to. One of the funniest things that ever happened in the camp is that one of the first days I was sitting there with an American friend of mine. There was these two guys, Muhammad's, both Muhammad's, that, um, you know, we saw a few times. They used to come out to smoke.
smoke. We smoked with them, kind of hung out and talked. And they were asking us where we're from. And I said, I'm from Israel and she's from America. So one Muhammad looks at the other and he says, where's Daesh when you need them? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That was so accurate. It was just... Yeah. Very, very funny. You weren't scared? <laughs> you weren't like, uh, no. It's like an awkward silence? <laughs> yeah, it was. It's an awkward silence because you're trying to figure out, is he And then, ser- and then yeah. everybody laughs. Yeah. There, there's, you know, it's a place of life. So there's a lot of humor and there's creation and there's, you know, humans coming together and there's problem solving and there's, there's intense moments of happiness when you manage to... Um, fulfill someone's want or but it all has to be kind of under this uh, over this underlying i mean many of them must fear that they're that they're not gonna see receive asylum what happens to them it's like a scent scent clock on your above your head well what happens if they don't uh well if they don't if they don't get if no if no other country in europe grants them asylum then they're then Greece automatically is supposed to grant them asylum yeah, this that's is one the of law. the yeah this is one of the reasons why Greece is very um, scared about the fact that only 5% of the population that has supposed to been moved out to other countries have because they will be left over with whoever mm-hmm. is not sent already we're seeing in Greece a rise of the of the right wing yeah. and the, the golden golden dawn was even yeah. before the refugee situation the not only in Greece in all over the world, all right. over Europe, and Trump is yeah Trump. Know, but I mean, in Italy, in Germany, yeah. in in the Netherlands, Brexit is definitely one of Brexit. That. We see Israel. It. There is also some right wing around. True, true, but nothing stronger. like nothing like uh, France. Really, you think? Yeah. Really? Yeah, nothing. No, nothing do like. Do you have members? Grillo or or or. Okay, you know. so have you tried you the have, strawberries? <laughs> do you have? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just gonna ask if you have members of parliament in any of the European countries that yeah. are that are saying they're gonna build the third temple on the most religious site for Muslims. You don't need to. I mean, in some of those countries, most of them are are very Christian governments in the first place. So they many, don't need much the third more temple. religious than uh, than us, I think. Um, in many of the schools. But, well, okay. The strawberries are very good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's <laughs> not getting into it. But I'm saying, yeah, right wing is rising in Europe. And that's a danger. So, I mean, there it. is, yeah, there is that fear that, you know, even if the, the law is that Greece has to take them in, I mean, you know, tomorrow something could happen where Greece is just like, fuck this, we're, you know. Yes. We're it, shipping it, them out. It could happen. One of the things um, that's also on the table is repatriation which is one of the scariest things that I've seen. It's the concept of we will pay you a lot of money if you want to go back home. Mm-hmm. Now, the Syrians want to go back home, but they know they have no home to go back to at this point. As soon as the war is finished, that's you know at least what they say, but many, many people want to go home. Repatriation is happening a lot with the Iraqis. One of the saddest moments, personally for me, um, was an Iraqi family with two girls that I um, that we helped through many challenges and they didn't get you know the, it was months upon months that they were waiting for resettlement they were waiting to get a new country um, they had some problems within the family uh, I was actually very close to the to the young girl and I was trying to give them extra attention because I knew there was some tension inside the family and after a lot of effort by everybody in the camp to provide them with options and alternatives, um, they decided to repatriate. 
So this beautiful eight-year-old girl and her 13-year-old sister who were going to school in Europe, who spoke amazing English, who were very excited about the concept of life in Europe mm-hmm. and now back in, in, in Iraq. Yeah, not much future there. No, and that's, it's, it's so depressing to see. Because otherwise, what would have happened if they d- didn't took it? No, they, it? They, they, they did that because they, they came to a conclusion that, um, that they weren't, weren't going to get a, a, another European country. They weren't uh-huh. going to get where they wanted. And there was also a lot of tension in the family and a lot of pressure on the mother to go back to Iraq, right. where um, she had more people to support her and stuff like that. And what she actually said to us is she said, um, I don't know how I'll do this without support. And mm-hmm. if you think about people coming from the Middle East, from such big families and from situations yeah where where we're very used to the concept of raising you know ch- raising the whole village, raising the child, mm-hmm. and then you take the family and you say, "No, we're going to take the three of you, the four of you, the eight of you, and we're going to put you somewhere in a country where you don't speak the language. The only people that you knew, the people that you traveled with, the people that are volunteering now in your refugee camp, you're going to be torn away from them. The little stability that you managed to have is going to be taken away from you and you're going to have to start over again. It right. makes me wonder, I mean, what is the, you know, I, it, it's a tragedy and it's, it's a horrible, horrible travesty, but it, it makes me wonder what is, this, what is the solution in the end? Because, you know, it's like trying to implant, uh, you know, uh, an organ that doesn't yeah. have the right blood type into So how, I mean, it's either they're there or they're Like in, she said, it's home. a lose-lose situation to everyone, no matter how you look at the it. The lose-lose situation is, is how I see the, ser- the civil war. It's not how I see the refugee crisis okay. at all. Um, I don't have the answer. I have some clues. You want answers. I, so I have some. I have some. <laughs> okay, just okay, okay. It's not the absolute answer. Okay. It's parts of it. Um, and this is, this is considering that we're going to see more and more refugees all over the world. Refugees and displaced populations are something we're going to see more of and not less in the mm-hmm. future, regardless of like how you perceive reality. Um, so part of the solution has to be empowering the people themselves. Humanitarian aid works in a very capitalistic, patronizing sort of way, saying you are helpless and I will help you. That has got to go. humanitarian system is set up in a way that it was set up after 45 after the Second World War and it has not been in, uh, innovated since so this is completely old style so part of it a big part of it has to be empowering the people themselves to help themselves another part has to consider more the local population because what's happening now is if you take Greece for example is Greece is in, a, in an economic crisis and then you place this population on it and then you have NGOs from all over the world coming in to try and fix this problem so to say so how do we empower local populations to care for the refugees how do we make sure the billions and billions of euros that are flowing in don't go to the cousin of some minister that gets horrible catered food to them which is what's happening now but But actually goes to local Greeks mm-hmm. to have them work on programs so how do we have the aid money come in as something that helps local economy while helping the refugees and create we have to start thinking in ecosystems mm-hmm. this is what sustainability is about you can't just think about one element and remove the rest you need mm-hmm. to think about 
everything together. And when you look at systems like that and you try to build things like that that are sustainable, that are led by natural leaders from the community, that are helped and supported by locals, that have a vested interest in this because they get money and they can get education and they could get all sorts of things. When you start putting things together like that, that is much more relevant and much more um, sustainable. You know, I'm, I keep and repeating effective. it effective and right like yeah. because we're not the the end of the day my aim at least and many of the people that i met our aim is not just to feed and clothe the people who don't have mm -hmm. food and clothes but to give because that's a bubble and, and 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 help and settle them correctly yes and you know what maybe not even settle that's that's another question like everything is another philosophical question right should we push to integration do they want to integrate Mm -hmm. Should we try and help them, and of course we do, and we did, try and help them understand what it means to be in Europe, what it means that if, I, if I'm walking around with a sleeveless top, I would never, you know, have cleavage. This is, by the way, the four months that I've the least cleavage in my life. It was uh -huh. very, very hard on, on me. It's new, it's new. Yes, yes. Modesty. Modesty, just a bit of cleavage. But <laughs> I put everything away. It was really, really awful. But um, there is the point of integration. There is the point of, yes, I'm going to show my shoulders and you guys are still going to have to respect me because I'm a volunteer here and I'm helping you. And yeah. then when you see a woman... Like you explain to the woman, yeah. Yeah, and then when you see a woman on the street with her shoulders showing, you will understand she is not necessarily a prostitute because you will have the memory of me, of us. Yeah, so but you explained also to the women. You, you, I, in your lecture, yeah. you say that. Another, that's another beautiful thing that I had the pleasure of, um, of taking part in is we did a women's health circle, which was um, very, very lucky. We had a, a nurse, a Syrian nurse within the camp. And um, so we got together and we said, okay, if we have a women's health class, how do we do it? And, um, and we got the Syrian women together, we invited them, and we, you know, we put out on the table in the middle many sort of women's health items and soaps and, and some creams and some donations that we had that were are kind of feminine, if you, if you wish. And uh, we actually printed out sketches of female anatomy and um, with a nurse, an American nurse that was um, volunteering through TR, Team Rubicon, who are an amazing organization that did the healthcare in El Pida does the healthcare in, in El Pida camp. Um, so we had this American nurse, the Syrian nurse, and me. I don't have any medical um, association. Yeah, except the Israeli educational system uh, yeah. taught you. My mother is a nurse. Does that count? No. <laughs> yeah. But I know how to invite people into conversation. I know how to host conversation, and mm -hmm. I know how to make feel people feel comfortable in a crowd. So we got them together. And we worked with a Syrian nurse to understand what would be socially acceptable and how far we can go, which is not as far as we wanted to, naturally. <laughs> but we actually got to a situation where we're sitting around. Around me, there's 30 Syrian and Iraqi women wearing, you know, the headscarf fully closed up. And we're looking at pictures of female anatomy explaining what comes from where and why. It's quite an image. It is quite an image. Literally. And then being, you know, cheeky, cheeky, you can actually, or we did, I did, um, kind of suggest, you know, this is, we point and we say, this is where female actually get pleasure. And then I could actually say something cheeky like, and you can also touch it if you want. 
And Ooh. that brought on that brought on a, a whole like a lot of laughter and a lot of la 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 <laughs> right wow that's amazing and but but seriously like on a more serious note um, speaking to them about their their rights to their bodies yeah. being able to sit in that circle and and explain and state you are in Europe now no but that is a serious note I mean however funny it is it's yeah. it's, it's not obvious it's such a class of cultures where in the Western culture I mean masturbation is you know maybe it's a it's a um, it's a little bit of a taboo to say the word but it's like okay we all know what Everybody masturbation is and yet and and just to all of a sudden, like, have that. He's like, uh-oh. 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 No, we're going to no, have to I'm bleep like, it out. Yeah, <laughs> the I, I, Jewish we're, journal. Oops, we're over <laughs> time. The Jewish journal. No, but to we're have, over, that, to have that all of a sudden clash with, you know, these women from Pakistan and from, who have, who. I had one, I had one woman who was um, severely distraught by my suggestion. And she asked to say something. And I said, of course, please do. And she said, um, I don't do those kind of things. She said, my husband is in Germany and when I get stressed and when I miss him, I read Quran and that allows me to unwind. Spiritual so, masturbation. Spiritual. So I said, I said to her, thank you for that. That's a really, really good example. And maybe the other ladies can learn from you. That's great. Thank you. There are different kinds of release. There is release for the mind. There's release for the body. There's release for the soul. And Sometimes you can combine. But let's not Ooh, get into that. I think you have to teach me some things right. after yeah, it's like we go You can replace there. the Quran with Fifty Shades of Grey, and then you kind of just put it all together. I don't. I don't think that that needs to be bleeped. I, okay. think, I think that's some hate mail asking. You can replace Before the Quran. Is losing that is it completely. True. Okay, true. but we do get to go though. Don't condone what was said in an no, okay. no. But um, I think I think it, it was important to hear those things, and that you did an amazing thing, and we wish you. Best of luck with everything. And I just want to mention two things. First of all, uh, Maya has a Facebook page. I do. Uh, which is Maya Rimer, M-A-Y-A. And Rimer is spelled R-I-M-E-R. M-E-R. Yeah, it's my personal M. profile. Hit me up for friendship. Follow me. Everything. Check out anything and everything. And she poke. gives lectures. Poke. You can poke her. Poke. Yeah, people I poke don't me. think it's... Oh, it's still a thing. Yeah, people, people can okay. still poke. Um, and uh, she gives lectures about her experience in the refugee camps mm. and um and she has amazing english so if yeah. you guys in the states like want to bring her oh yeah for for oh, yeah. a little road trip of lectures feel free I really but also our israeli listeners stay tuned because i'm sure on your facebook page you'll share you'll have one soon enough yeah for sure we have i have all sorts of talks coming up when i when i come back as i said i'm going I'm leaving back to greece for a while mm-hmm. um, four months for for only for two weeks this four time. months <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know um but yeah i'd love to i'd love to you know anybody who wants to reach out and discuss you know how we can change these things if anybody wants recommendations if, for uh, how if, to volunteer if, it, exactly how how to volunteer yeah so through vo- your organization so um one example there are a few organizations that i can that i can um speak of one is together for better days mm-hmm. um another is eco project eko project Uh, another amazing organizations the organization that I love is the Flying Seagull project it's a circus group um, and one last um, organization that I will name is hot food Idemini 
um, hot foods, all of these organizations are grassroots mm-hmm. organizations that, first of all, rely Just on briefly. rely on donations um, for everything. So if you want to donate, if you want to volunteer, if you want to get to know, and these are organizations that I can fully vouch okay, for. Okay, we'll put links. Um, Maya, thank you so much for coming. Thank, thank you, guys. You. Thank you so much. Real pleasure. Bye, Ethan. Bye. Bye.